Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Hi, I'm Miranda Wright, and this is day 18 of our 120-day Upper Room Prayer Campaign. And today we're going to pray, Lord, teach us how to pray. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's instruction to Timothy, a young pastor, in how to run the church, he says, I exhort thee that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Paul saw fit that for the instructions of the church, he would say, first of all, before all, more importantly than all, make sure that you pray. When a church isn't praying, they're just playing. They're putting on a show. They're going through the motions, but they have not sought the Lord for a word from the Lord that it might be backed up by the power and authority of the Lord. Throughout scripture, anytime the narrative of the story took a sudden shift, it came by way of prayer. We see this in the story of Hannah with her travailing prayer when the nation of Israel had been going through a cycle of rebellion and the very glory of God was threatening to depart from the house of God in Shiloh. We see this no-named face, this woman of God, rise up and begin to travail in prayer. And in doing so, the Lord heard her prayer, her cry, though she was not a priest, though she was not a person of pedigree. In fact, she was despised and rejected. She was mocked and ridiculed by those of her own house. Yet through her travailing, through her prayer, she broke through to heaven and God heard. And God birthed in her the very embodiment of revival for a nation through her son, Samuel. We see in the story of Nehemiah and Ezra at a time when the Israelites had been taken captive into Babylon and then overtaken by Persia. And they had been many years in captivity that the city of Jerusalem had been overrun, broken down, ridden with sin and corrupt, that through prayer and travail, the entire nation was turned back to God. While Nehemiah was given a commission to build the wall, Ezra stood before the people and he gave no fancy exhortation. He gave no poetic preaching. He gave no powerful prophecy. He offered up a prayer. And as he prayed before the people, a mighty work of God began to move upon them and they began to see themselves in their sin, in their rebellion, in their brokenness. And they came before the Lord and joined in to Ezra's prayer in weeping repentance. And it set the nation into revival. It turned everything around. It ignited the rebuilding of the house of God, of the temple of God. It brought the people back into right standing with God and therefore communion with God, which is the will of God. And everything changed. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried out and prayed that precious prayer. Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed and was strengthened for the trial to come. The narrative of his story, the culmination of his life, everything hinged around that prayer. The power of the kingdom of God touching earth always culminates in a place of prayer. All the great prophets and patriarchs of scripture were men and women of prayer. 
The Bible says that Elijah was a man of like passions unto us. In other words, he was no different than any of us. He was not superhuman. He was a normal man that faced normal temptations. And, and yet the Bible says that he prayed fervently and the rains were shut up and he prayed again and the skies were opened and the rains returned. What made this man such a great prophet of God? that every other true prophet in history would align themselves with his spirit being as one in the wilderness crying, repent, repent, make your crooked way straight and prepare the way of the Lord. The scripture says that he was a righteous man. In other words, he chose to be in right standing with God and that he prayed fervently. My friend, you will never be in right standing with God unless you are a man of fervent prayer because it is in that place of fervent prayer that God reveals himself to you, that God reveals his will to you, that you can get in alignment with it and be in right standing with God, which is the very essence of righteousness. God's righteousness, not our own. What he says is right, not what we think is right. What he says to do, not what we want to do. To be in right standing with God and to be a man or woman of fervent, effectual prayer will avail much. It will bring change. It will bring it individually in your own life. It will bring it corporately in the lives of those around you and it will bring it national. If God's people will humble themselves, seek his face, turn from their wicked way and pray. When the church stops playing and starts praying, you're going to see things change. But sadly, often enough, the church doesn't actually start praying until things get so dire that they are forced to. My friends, it ought not be so, and I'm sending out a call and a petition now that every heart would look to the Lord God Almighty himself and say, God, teach me how to pray. I want to pray now by choice and humble submission than to have to pray later by force because of the condition of the nation around me. Because of the church's lack of prayer, things got darker. We often look for everything that we can do to busy ourselves and look important, but pray because most prayer is done in the secret place where no one sees. In prayer, God gets the attention and he gets the glory. And that's why so few do because it's not a place where they can get the attention because they're too busy out in the highways and the byways where they can get attention and glory. Let me tell you, friend, the story of your life will be told one day. On that great day of judgment, when we stand before the throne of God and every detail of our lives is told out before all of the saints and angels, your story will be told. And that person who is willing to humble themselves and spend that time in prayer and warfare, crying out and seeing things change for the kingdom from a place where no man saw, but all of heaven applauded, it will be told. And great will be the reward because all will know that they did it with selfless, humble intent and for the glory of God and not for the applause of men. But for those who worked and labored hard, not by the will and instruction of the Lord, but by their own leading for the attention of men, they will have reaped their reward in the end. And they're going to stand before God and he's going to tell their story, but then he's going to reveal the intent of their heart before all. And it will be stated if it was done for applause, if it was done for attention, if it was done to build their own kingdom at the expense of God's, the intents of the hearts will be made known. So make sure your intents are pure. 
look, we have to affect the world out there. So not everything that we do will be done in secret. There are things that must be done corporately. There are stands that must be taken publicly. We must teach. We must instruct. And God knows that. That's why he calls people and sends them forth to do so. But make sure you're doing it by his leading and not your own. For the glory of his throne and not for attention. Because he will make all known on that final day. And I want to live in a way that gives me the best story. That when my story is told before the saints of old, it will be the best story possible. The most humble. The most selfless. The most victorious. The most faithful. The most glorious. I wholeheartedly believe that on that day there are going to be little no-named old grannies that prayed in great revivals, though no one ever knew their name, who are going to receive a much greater reward than many a TV evangelist that stood before men with great fame. Because I'm telling you that the power of the kingdom is released into this earth in a place of prayer. And again, I understand that we have to teach people, we have to preach the truth, we have to minister. And evangelism is a biblical call. But what I am saying is that if you're not praying in private, you have no place praying in public. If you're not worshiping when no one is looking, then you have no right worshiping on a stage before men. If you're not preaching to the mirror, then you should by no means be preaching to others. The fires of revival are sparked in the heart of the individual in the secret place of prayer when it's just them and God. Stoked by prayer, fed by fasting, fanned by fervency, brokenness, humility, and thankfulness until you are set ablaze for God and all self-doubt and fear is burned away. Then and only then can it be spread to others, igniting everyone you touch with the simple acts of obedience to the instructions gained in the secret place with God. True revival fire comes from God. Strange fire comes from men. Remember that the fire in the Bible didn't specifically fall on the altar. It fell on the sacrifice which was laid on the altar. And only when the sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable unto the Lord. So choose in the private when no one is looking to offer that sacrifice of praise. And if you don't think praise is a sacrifice, then it's because you're only praising him when you feel like it. Because true praise is sacrificial. Because true praise you offer when you don't feel like it. When you're broken. When you're desperate. When you feel defeated. When it looks like nothing's working out the way that you want. When it seems like everything that you thought was going to happen has fallen apart and now it's absolutely impossible. When a loved one dies. When you're sick. When you're exhausted. That's when you offer that sacrifice of praise. Offer a sacrifice of prayer when you don't think you have the time, when you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night, but the Lord is calling you to get up and intercede for someone or something. Offer that sacrifice of prayer. Offer the sacrifice of fasting because Jesus himself said that some breakthroughs will only come by way of prayer and fasting. Offer the sacrifice of obedience and watch the fire of God fall on you like never before. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, we are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice because it is our reasonable service. In other words, it's not only expected, but it's considered the least we can do. My friend, prayer is a privilege. Jesus Christ suffered and died 
to bring reconciliation between us and the Father that we might have communion with him personally and not have to go to a priest, but be able to speak to him directly because of the blood of Jesus that washes us clean and atones for our sin. We then can enter into the Holy of Holies. And as Paul said, go boldly before the throne of grace and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you will ask of me, I will give you of those living waters and it will be a well inside of you that will spring up and we can commune with him daily. It is a privilege that we have been given. It is a gift that Jesus paid for with his precious blood. We ought not to neglect it or take it for granted. It was Christ's desire more than anything else that he might be with us and commune. Prayer is not only a privilege, but it is a great power and responsibility of which we will have to give an account for how we use on that great day. In the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel's prayers actually aided the archangel Michael in a heavenly battle against the principality over Persia. And you might say, how can our prayers aid in an angelic battle? friend, it's because we have been given dominion over the earth and our prayers or our spoken word or how we release the commands that exercise that dominion. That's why Jesus said you have to speak to the mountain and tell it to be cast into the midst of the sea and it shall be removed. We've got to speak forth the mandates and the decrees of heaven and then it releases the armies of heaven to move and to do the work of the kingdom in the earth of which we have dominion. You see, at crucifixion, Christ gained all power, authority, and dominion, but then he delegated that to his bride. And he did it in a place of prayer, of communion. You see, the Last Supper that we call communion, communion meaning fellowship, that place of fellowship, where Jesus sat there and passed the cup around to his disciples. You've got to understand the rituals of the time. It was a custom of the time that when a man became betrothed to his bride, they would sit and have a banquet and they would pass the cup and they would both drink of the same cup. And this was the bride's way of saying, I come into agreement with this covenant. I will be betrothed. I will be engaged to this groom. You see what Christ did at the Last Supper, it was intimate, it was communion. And this is where the church represented as the disciples of the time became the bride of Christ because he knew that something was coming that they didn't know. You see, Jesus made a covenant, a new will and testament where we get the new testament. It was a will and he was about to will all of his power, authority, dominion and might over to his new bride but first he would have to die because no will and testament has any power until the tester has died do you see what was happening here the last supper this communion where he becomes betrothed to the bride the church and then he goes and he offers himself a willing sacrifice and the devil thinking that he's winning watches christ draw that last breath and he thinks i've got him all of a sudden he realizes checkmate no he had power, authority, and dominion, so I thought I'd get rid of him, but I didn't realize that he willed it to the bride. So what was Christ's dominion becomes our dominion. What was Christ's authority becomes our authority. The scripture says that we have become joint heirs, equal heirs with Christ, and all that he has inherited has become ours because that we are his bride.
and we work in his stead. And until he returns, we move with the authority of the kingdom under his leadership and direction, us being the body, him being the head. But we get none of that instruction or power unless we come to him in a place of prayer. Our salvation comes by prayer. That is where we release the faith when we commune with him and talk with him. Our revelation comes in that place of prayer when we sit and are taught by him. Our healing and deliverance comes by prayer when we cry out to him. Our instruction comes by prayer when we seek his face and get his will. Everything in our Christian life comes by faith. But faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, therefore we must grab hold of it in the place of prayer. So everything comes back to prayer. So why aren't we praying more? Why aren't we preaching more that we ought be praying more? Why aren't we teaching more that we ought be praying more? Why aren't we focusing it all back to prayer and away from the programs and the personalities? Because we're so worried about building something with our own hands and we're so focused on creating something out of our own intellect but it will never be back with the power of the kingdom unless it's birthed in a place of prayer. Oh Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, the disciples, they spent time with Jesus himself, the greatest preacher, teacher, evangelist, miracle worker the world has ever known, but they never said, Lord, teach me how to preach or teach me how to raise the dead or teach me how to prophesy. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because they knew that everything else would flow out of it. Because if you can get that connection to God Almighty, then what else more do you really need? So when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he begins this narrative where he does just that. And I cannot teach you any better than Christ himself, so I will take you through the narrative really quickly. He begins by saying, first of all, do not pray to be seen or heard. I love it that Smith Wigglesworth says that if you want to be used mightily by God, the first thing you have to do is to be delivered from the desire to be seen and heard. God's not looking for people that want to put on a show. He's looking for a people that will pray. So Jesus explains to them that they are not to pray for the attention of men, that they are not to pray to gain an audience but that we are to pray to get God's attention. Because prayer is communion, and communion was Jesus' greatest desire. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will open, then I will come in and sup with you. Jesus was always talking about coming in and having dinner, coming in and supping, coming in and having communion, because in that culture, that was the time of visitation. You had to work very hard. You had to work for your food. You had to work for your living. You had to work in your trade. And men and women were busy and they were exhausted. But the time when they could come and sit and visit and talk one-on-one and truly get to know each other was around the dinner table. So all these times he's talking about coming in and having dinner, coming in and supping. He's talking about coming in and getting to know you and having that communion and talking. In the Jewish culture, it was also around the supper table that the head of the house would instruct and teach the children and the servant and those in the house that needed to learn. It was a place of learning, of teaching, of discipling. Jesus said, I'm knocking. I'm ready and willing to come in. 
I'm ready to come in and visit with you. I'm ready to come in and teach you. I'm ready to come in and disciple you. I'm ready to come in and visit with you if you will just open the door. When he did the communion, he said, until I return, continue to do this in remembrance of me. We do the actual steps of the ordinance and it is important to remember the parts of the ordinance and what they represent because it keeps in our remembrance what Christ did for us until he returns. But he meant in broader spectrum when he said, do this in remembrance of me. He says, continue to commune with me until I physically return. Sit and have communion with me. Not just grape juice and crackers. Conversation and visitation. We read of a story in the scriptures after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ before anyone knew that Christ had returned. Jesus is walking down this road and he crosses paths with these, these men and they don't recognize him or, or know who he is. But they're talking about the events that have taken place and about how they thought surely that this had been their Christ and their Messiah. But now he's gone and Jesus is walking with them and he's like, tell me what's going on. What are you talking about? And they like, haven't you heard? And so they're beginning to tell him and he begins to expound upon the scriptures to them and they're talking and they're, they're, they're so enamored with what they're hearing. They're like, this makes sense. This is burning in my spirit. Something is right about this. We really enjoy the teaching of this teacher. Would you come and sup with us? These words seem tried and true. There's something about them, but I can't put my finger on it. Would you come in and sup with us? And so Jesus goes in and he sits down and he communes with them and he has supper with them and he breaks bread. And when he comes to that place of communion with them and and when he comes to that point at which he breaks the bread, at that point, he reveals himself to them. It's not until they came into communion, until they sat and supped with him, that God revealed himself to them. And we can walk with Christ all day long, talking to him in our busyness, and we can read the word and have it stand out to us and say, you know what, there's something powerful about this. But we will never gain the revelation of who God truly is until we take the time to sit and sup with him, until we have that personal communion. Yes, it's good. We should pray without ceasing. We should be praying all day long as we work, as we do our chores, as we go to school, as we do those busy things that we have to do without the day. We should continue to talk talk with him. We should listen to sermons and worship music and have those things filled in. But it's not until we get into that secret place of prayer where we shut everything out and shut ourselves in with him, as the scripture says, and wait upon the Lord. When we sit and commune with him, when we sit and let him teach us and instruct us and disciple us, he will reveal himself to us. Revelation will come out of it and who he really is will begin to shine forth and it will become more and more who who we are because this is the place where we gain his heart and knowing the word of God which is the sword of God without having the heart of God will do you more damage than good because you'll cut people down with it it's dangerous to have a sword without a good heart to wield it we need the master's heart and we need to sit and wait on him until we get it it's in the communion of personal intimate prayer that God brings revelation and begins to truly reveal himself to you, his heart, his ways, and his will. 
if we can't even pray effective prayers if they are not in alignment with his will. So until we have communed with him and sought him, that's why the Bible says that we have to humble ourselves, seek him, and then turn from our wicked ways. Because if we come to realize that we need to have communion with him and we, ha- we cannot do it on our own, that our plans won't work, and then we seek his face, we're seeking to find out what his will is. And when we do find out what his will is, then we have to repent of all the other things that we were doing because they were our own will. We have to turn away from everything else because everything else is iniquity in God's eyes. Get in alignment with his will and then we can begin to pray in power. Because until we are praying in alignment with his will, our prayers are not even being heard and I will prove it to you. In 1 John 5, 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desire of him. In other words, he will hear us when we pray in accordance with his will. But if we have not humbled ourselves and sought him and waited upon him and communed with him in that place of prayer to find out what his will is, then we're wasting our time, we're wasting our energy, we're wasting our efforts, and we're wasting our breath because it all comes back to his will. In John chapter 9, verse 31, it says, We know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he will hear. And in this we see a very firm reality, that if we are still walking in sin, God does not hear our prayers. And anything else we do, even if it's in his name, we are doing in our flesh or by the leading of another spirit. This is why Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name and prophesied and done all these great things? And he'll say, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. You are still in sin. You're not even mine. Not all those who say unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. Because if we're not doing God's will, then it's fruit that we have not humbled ourselves and sought him. If we are still walking in sin, then he does not even hear our prayers except for the prayer of humble repentance. And saints of the living God, stop calling yourself sinners. I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, I'm just a sinner. Do you realize that that is a profession of faith to acknowledge yourself still among the sinners? When Jesus says God can't even hear the prayer of a sinner and that if we are still sinners, then we are servants of Satan. Dear hearts, make a profession of faith in the power of our Christ that I was a sinner, but by God, he has saved me and sanctified me and set my feet upon a rock and raised me up into heavenly places with Christ that I am now a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled saint of the living God, not by anything that I was able to do, but by what Christ did. And I will profess that because I believe that that is my profession of faith that causes his grace to be poured out upon me because it is a declaration of his power, authority and might and the majesty of what our Christ did in defeating the enemy 
in purchasing us back with his own blood. I am not still a sinner. I am not still in bondage to that old devil. I am not making that my profession of faith. My profession of faith is that I am a blood-bought, born-again child of the King. He is my God, and I am his daughter. My profession of faith is that my Christ has defeated that old foe and brought me into right standing with him, and that I will stand before him one day on judgment. And the books will be open and my name will be found among the saints. And he will say, enter into your rest, my good and faithful servant. You have done well. Because you have truly believed. Oh, let that be our profession. Oh, dear heart, it is not humility to continue to claim sin when Jesus paid the price to deliver you from it. It is a declaration of a lack of faith in what the blood of Jesus has done. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, he then gives them this pattern perfect prayer, which we call the Our Father. And he basically explains to them that I don't want you repeating this prayer, but I will give it to you as a pattern of what you ought to pray. He even says, pray not in vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard of God for their much babbling making it very clear that if we simply repeat a prayer or pray in repetition, then God's not hearing it. God considers it babble. But yet he gives us this prayer as a pattern to look at as the way we ought to pray. So he says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, he's saying, begin your prayer by acknowledging who it is you're praying to. And speaking honor to him. He continues to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So after you have acknowledged who it is you're praying to and given honor to him, then begin to pray his will because it is God's will that his kingdom come and that his will be done. So we begin to pray, Lord, take away my will. I want your will. We need to pray in accordance with your will. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let it be on earth just like it is in heaven. And you know what? His kingdom will come when his will is done on earth just like it is in heaven. You want the power of heaven, the power of the kingdom to invade this earth? It will only come when his will is done just like it is in heaven. So if you want the power of the kingdom to manifest through your life, then you need to submit your will to his and it will come. If you want the power of the kingdom to manifest in your church, then the leadership of your church needs to submit their will to his will, to give up their plan for his plan, to lay down their kingdom for his kingdom, and it will come. And if we want to see the power of the kingdom of God manifest And in any situation of our lives, then we've got to begin to lay down our will and seek him for his will in that area. The next thing he says is, give us this day our daily bread. That speaks to both spiritual and physical needs. Because yes, we do need sustenance. But Jesus himself was called the bread of life, the manna from heaven. He is our daily bread. So before we ask for anything else, when we come, once we come into alignment with God's will and pray for his will, we need to pray for the power to walk in that will, which is the power of our Christ. So we have to ask daily, Lord, give me your grace. Lord, I need you. I need to be taught by you. I need to commune with you. I need that fresh manna from heaven, which is your word, which is you who are the word. I need you. 
And then, Lord, whatever physical needs I need to be met, I trust that you're going to meet that because your word says you know what we need even before we pray it. But if there be any physical needs, I lay them out now. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's so important to remember in your prayers that when you pray for forgiveness, that you remember to forgive others. It must come hand in hand because Jesus continues to say that God will not forgive our trespasses if we're not willing to forgive others theirs. So we need to remind ourselves every time that we come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness that others are deserving of our forgiveness also. That we messed up and made mistakes and we want to be forgiven. So we need to forgive those who have done the same. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In our prayers, in our daily prayers, we need to be humbling ourselves and seeking God for the way of escape. God says that there is no temptation that is not common unto every man, yet some fall into them and some don't. He said, why? He said, because I have made a way out of every temptation. There is always a way of escape, but we have to humble ourselves and seek him to find it. We've got to pray daily. God, God, show me the way out of this temptation. God, show me what to do to walk in right standing with you. God, help me to not fall to this thing. The Bible says that as soon as you think that you won't fall, you will. And I believe that's because as soon as you think I've got this, you'll stop seeking God for the way of escape. And you're going to end up blindly walking into a snap because the devil is cunning. He is tricky and he is laying snares for you everywhere. But God sees all. And as long as we continue continually seek him we humble ourselves before him he will show us how to walk around every trap and snare he will give us the way out of every temptation but as soon as we get prideful and think that we're doing it and we stop seeking him for that way of escape we're gonna fall right into the pit and he concludes by saying for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen he's saying that we should ask god to deliver us from every evil and seek his way of escape because we've got to remember that it's not by our strength or our power that we have been avoiding these snares that we have overcome sin and trial and temptation but it is by his power because it's his kingdom it's his power and it's all for his glory we need to recognize that we need to acknowledge that we need to to worship him for that we need to humble ourselves before that and we need to seek him so that we can continue to walk in that and it's a daily prayer it's a daily seeking and at the end of this prayer he leaves them with a starch warning he says for if ye forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you forgive not men their trespasses neither will your father forgive you yours remembering that we must always be humble. So why are some prayers answered and some prayers not answered? Well, I think it's very clear that that many prayers are not prayed in alignment with God's will. And we've already touched on that, that he will answer every prayer that is prayed in alignment with his will. But men are not humbling themselves to seek him for what his will is. Therefore, they're praying soulish, selfish prayers that are not being answered. In James chapter 4 verse 3 it says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lust. Know ye not that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of 
God. Many people are praying for very selfish, very worldly things. And James is saying, God's not going to answer this prayer because you're praying selfish prayers for selfish reasons. And many times people are even praying for spiritual things for selfish gain. He's saying, you want this to consume it upon your own lust. Do you not understand that to desire the things of the world or the things that the world likes, to desire money, possession, prosperity, position, pomp, a platform, and all of these things makes you the enemy of God? He's not going to give you something that's going to destroy you. The devil might answer that prayer, but God's not going to answer that. Jesus said, if you ask, you shall receive. And God does say to seek after the gifts. But in James, it says, sometimes you ask and you seek, but you are not given it because your motive was selfish rather than selfless. James also continues in that same passage to say that God resists the proud, but he pours more grace, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, on the humble. If you will humble yourself and have selfless motives, then God will willingly pour out more grace upon you. And grace, remember, is his favor, his power, and his divine influence. But if you have selfish, prideful motives... He will not answer that prayer. You will make yourself his enemy. He will resist you. Dear hearts, your motive matters. There is a story in the New Testament of a man who saw the apostles praying for people. And with the laying on of hands, they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And it says that he believed and began to follow them. But when he saw that by the laying on of their hands, other men received the Holy Spirit. He went up to them and he offered them money and said, give me this gift. He wanted to buy the gift so that he could have power and prestige and attention and pomp so that he would have the gift of laying hands on people because he wanted people to see him laying hands on others and then fall out. He wanted people to see him laying hands on others and they be healed. He wanted attention. He wanted notoriety. He wanted fame. He wanted prestige. And the disciples said, repent for your heart is not right in this matter. And they actually warned him that God's judgment would fall upon him unless he begged for mercy. It is a serious thing. Prayer has great power, but motive matters. Because, beloved, I am telling you, if you pray from a place of selflessness, the power of the kingdom will move to honor those prayers unto the blessing of souls. But if you pray from a place of selfishness, it actually becomes soulish prayers, which are literally demonic prayers. The Bible says that these things are not from above, but they are devilish. And you will end up praying curses upon people and not even realize it. The motive matters. So God, we pray for pure hearts and clean hands because your word says, who can ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Only he who has a pure heart and clean hands. God, you want to have communion. Jesus, you said in your prayer to the father for us that it was your desire that we would be together. And so many times, Jesus, you said to open the door so you could come in and sup. You desire communion. You said to do it as often as possible in remembrance of you. You want to come in and sup with us. You want to have that communion with us. You want to sit and teach us. 
Lord, when the apostle Paul got saved, it says he went to no man, but he sat with you in a place of prayer personally for three and a half years, seeking you and and being taught directly by you. God, give us a people that will pray. Lord, a people that will lay down the programs and stop following after the patterns of men and personalities and will pick up your word and will read it and will sit and sup with you and spend that time of personal prayer. God, I thank you that we can pray without ceasing day in and day out while we're working, while we're commuting while we're going through the motions of the day, but let us commit to sit and submit and spend that time being, being taught by you and instructed by you. Teach us how to pray. Oh God almighty, we give you reverence. We give you honor. We worship you. You are worthy. Only you can give us the way of escape. God, we do pray for forgiveness of our failures, of our shortcomings. God, we pray that you show us, that you teach us, that you show us the path of righteousness. God, we humble ourselves unto you. We acknowledge you. We do not choose to lean unto our own understanding, but in all our ways, we want to stop and seek you and acknowledge you, that you might direct our path, that you might order our steps, that we might be in right standing with you, that our steps be ordered that our prayers be heard, that we be in alignment with your word and your will and your destiny for our life. God, we want to know you more. We want you to reveal yourself to us. We want to take the time to show you that we believe you, we believe in you, and we love you. Because if we truly love you, we will desire to spend time with you. We will long for those moments that we get to visit with you. We will love to sit and sup with you. God, We will want your presence more than anything else. And how can we go out and carry your presence if we have not first sat and soaked it in? Dear hearts, I have to give you an example of what it means to truly be baptized in Jesus. Because in the Bible, there were a couple of different words for submerge. For example, there was a word in the original Greek that was used when Judas dipped the bread into the sop. And it says that he submerged it. The word there was a type of baptism, but it was a quick baptism. It was an in and out and there was no change to the bread. And therefore we can see that reflected even in Judas himself. He might've been dipped in water. He might've been around the presence, but he didn't allow himself to be saturated by it, to be changed by it. Like for example, John and Peter and those who truly soaked it in and enjoyed being in the presence of the king because the word for baptism true baptism like when the bible says that we are baptized in christ it represented being submerged and then kept until you were changed the example that is given that that may help you to understand it is like when you make pickles when you make pickles you you take the cucumber and you dip it very quickly into hot water that's it's submerged it's dipped but it's it doesn't stay long enough to change it it comes out still a cucumber but then it is submerged into the brine and the salt and the vinegar begins to saturate that pickle and it stays in the presence of the brine until the cucumber is in the brine and the brine is in the cucumber and it is completely transformed and it is now a pickle. And so we have to come to that place where we're not just dipped or dunked, where we just don't step in and step out on Sunday morning, where we aren't just dropped in water and picked back up, but where we literally get in the presence of Jesus Christ himself and are truly baptized in Christ, that we 
soak in his presence until we are in him and he is in us and we have become completely transformed and changed into a whole new thing that when we go out we carry the presence with us because we are so saturated by it but we are not going to have that unless we sit in that presence long enough to absorb it and be transformed and be changed by it. We don't want to be influenced by the world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But if you soak more in the world than you do in the presence of God, then you're going to be changed into the likeness of the world. But if you will turn the TV off, if you will turn the Netflix off, if you will turn the phone off and the social media and the radio and get in the presence of God, because all of that is you being saturated by the brine of the world. But if you will turn it all off and get in the presence of God and sit with Jesus and be taught by the Holy Spirit you will begin to be saturated by heaven and then where you go you will take heaven with you what good is the salt if it's lost its savor which is its ability to change things that is to transfer its saltiness to all that is around it God give us a heart that burns to be in your presence Lord, let us recognize the idols that have taken our time that we put in place of you. The entertainment that the world uses to keep dead men from knowing that they were dying. That we would come to you in a place of prayer with desire. That we would love what you love and hate what you hate. That as we would for anyone that we truly love, that we would begin to have a disdain for the things that try to come between us. That we would begin to despise those things that try to seduce us away from you. And that, Lord, we would recognize the idols for what they are, the seduction of the enemy that is trying to draw us away from our time with our groom. God, we lay it all down for the sake of the call. And it is not a burden. It is not grievous. The word says that your commandments are not grievous to us because we don't do it out of law we do it out of love and when we truly love you when we truly recognize you when we truly have a relationship with you it is not hard to lay those things aside it is a desire of our heart but God we can't come to love you if we're not willing to spend time with you because every relationship starts with time starts with communication it starts with communion And we've got to be willing to spend that time with you, to get to know you, to be changed by you, to become one. God, teach us how to pray. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.